Well, good morning. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, open up to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. I'm going to start there. And uh, like many of these uh, topics, we are going to move all around, continuing our series on tough questions. Just uh, while you guys are turning next week, question of wealth and uh, spirituality. Can I be godly and rich at the same time? Some would say yes, some would say no, uh, some would say maybe. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that next week. Uh, But for this week, we will be uh, in Psalm chapter 2. Let me read for us from there before we start. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we pray that we would be a people who take refuge in you. We pray that we would reverently submit to Jesus Christ, your Son, who rules the world and one day will rule this world in righteousness and truth and absolute power. Father, we pray that it would be at his feet that we would bow. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to understand it with our minds. Father, we pray you would help us to believe what it has to say. Open up our minds and our hearts to believe it, and we pray that you would empower us through your spirit to obey as you would have us to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, as I researched and thought about this topic of politics and social justice in the Bible, it occurred to me that I actually have a past as a politician. Believe it or not, in my past, I ran for office. When I was a sophomore in high school, I noticed that... uh, our school had these class officer positions. Some of you may have had them at your school, and uh, the class officer positions were designed so that we could raise money for our prom, come up with uh, various fundraisers, and put together funds, and put on a great prom. And I noticed at the end of my sophomore year that there was nobody occupying the position of class treasurer. So I decided to throw my name into the ring, thinking, there's no opposition. How hard could it be? Well, it turned out that uh, four other people noticed the same thing and decided to put their name in the hat as well. So there were five of us running. Now, uh, it's difficult when you are running for a high school position to really distinguish yourself on the basis of the issues. All right, the reason is because all we're really doing is putting on bake sales, uh, you know, maybe a contest or something where you whack a VW bug and you pay money to do it or something like that. And so it's really difficult. If we had a debate, it would be hard to distinguish us on the basis of the issues unless, 
as treasurer, there's just one guy in the group that can't add or something, right? And you can just go, what's five plus six? And he goes, 10. I win, right? But it's not that simple. And so uh, I began to think, how can I distinguish myself amongst all of these candidates? And uh, the things that I ultimately thought of were uh, publicity, uh, which essentially amounted to put as many signs in the hallway as you can fit before the principal comes and takes them down, right? And so uh, we did that. We put signs up. I had a friend of mine that could do an excellent plagiarism of the Calvin and Hobbes cartoons, and he drew them on my posters. We came up with little slogans like, vote for money bags, Morton, right? And, and in retrospect, <laughs> in retrospect, I go, I don't know that that's the best name for a guy that's wanting to take your money, right? It sounds like Scrooge McDuck or something like that. I'm going to hold it and count it, you know, but it worked. And, uh, the other thing that I did was uh, what politicians just call pressing the flesh. On the day of the election, I walked around the cafeteria, found all my friends, and I said, uh, would you get up from your lunch right now and go and vote for me? And uh, many of them did, and it turned out that I actually won. I won the election that year. Thank you. I, yeah, I know. And, uh, you know, let's go back to my old days of glory. And I, I won the election. And I won uh, twice in a row, uh, but as I thought about it, I thought, really, on what basis are people voting? It's like any competition at that age, like a, like a cheerleader or a class president or whatever. You're essentially voting on maybe popularity, maybe charisma, maybe publicity, maybe who uh, talks you into voting, but your reasons are not that sound. And, and as I thought about it, I realized there's actually a lot of similarities between a high school election and the way that we often elect presidents and senators and politicians in our country. Because if we're honest, many of us, we listen to which guy looks the best on TV, which guy speaks the best, which guy do I have a sense has the best personality, and we vote that person in. Or maybe we vote on the basis of which person we perceive will be best for our own self-interest. Which person is going to enact policies that will allow me to get the best job or get the most for my dollar of health care or whatever it might be? I enact, I vote for those that I deem to be in my self-interest. Now, some really deeply care and maybe you research the issues and you know the issues and you vote on that basis, right? Others, perhaps you harbor a deep-seated apathy or even cynicism toward the political process, You go, well, does it really matter if this guy's in or this guy's in? Does it really matter what policies are elected because all I've seen are promises broken? And so you have a a, a cynicism toward the process. And, And for a lot of us, we struggle with how do we reconcile our faith in Jesus Christ to our interaction with issues like politics and social justice? How do we interact as believers in Jesus Christ with this area of our lives? It's a big issue. And uh, books have been written about the issue. And people have uh, split churches over the issue. But how do we determine how we interact in this area of politics as believers in Christ? Is God a Republican or a Democrat? Or uh, is he supporting the Green Party or the Tea Party or the Whigs or whoever it might be? What party does God support? We're going to talk a little bit about what does the scripture say on this issue of how God relates to government and politics and social justice and social action. What does God have to say about it? And what I really want to do is I want to pull away from a lot of the typical rhetoric and I really just want to look at what does the scripture say about God's relationship to the government and politics. So some of the questions you may have about specific policies, I may not answer. And the reason for that is because the scripture doesn't 
answer it. But what we're going to talk about is how does God view governments and politics? And the first thing that we see is simply this. God sits above human politics. He sits above human politics. Uh, We read Psalm 2. At the beginning, I love Psalm 2. It talks about all of the nations. They're in an uproar. They're devising schemes. They've got all their plans. And they are going to overthrow God's rule. And then it says, God sits up in the heavens. And he looks down. And he laughs. And he says, I'm going to install my king. I'm going to install my rule. God sits far above human politics. Now, does that mean he's not interested? No, we'll talk about that in a few moments. But the point is that God is on God's side. One of the best uh, passages, one of the passages that I love from the book of Joshua, if you were here last semester, we preached through Joshua and Judges. One of the passages that I love is as Joshua in chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. Joshua is about to go into battle with his army. And the night before the battle, there's a man that appears to Joshua. And this man has a sword and it's drawn and he's walking toward Joshua and Joshua says, hold up. You on my side or you on their side? And this angel says, no, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Take off your feet. You're standing on holy ground. Joshua gets down on his knees before the commander of the army of the Lord. And the idea is this. I'm not for your nation. I'm not for their nation. I am not taking a side. If you want to be on my side, great. You can be on mine. By reflecting the character that I've sent you to reflect, the character of God. But no, I'm not on your side. I think back to my days uh, in late elementary school when we first, many of us, became aware of the concept that there were cool kids and other kids. And at the lunch, uh, in the lunchroom, there were uh, multiple tables, and there was one table, at least in my school, where all of the cool kids would sit. And if you wanted to be near them, you would try to squeeze up your chair to their table. And there were other tables where all of the other kids would sit who had been pushed out. And I remember distinctly there was this one guy that was the coolest, most popular kid in our sixth grade class. And uh, his name was Brad, I still remember. And one day Brad came in and Brad just sat down at a table removed from all the other tables and he just sat there like this. And uh, we all kind of tried to squeeze into this cool table and suddenly somebody goes, what's Brad doing? I don't know. Why isn't Brad sitting at our table? Hey, Brad, do you want to come sit at our table? No. And somebody goes, I think that Brad's too cool for our table. I think if we want Brad to sit with us, we have to go sit with Brad. And so we all got up and we walked over and we sat with Brad. Why? Because Brad was above our little coolness or non-coolness. Brad was too cool for any of it, right? As I read the scripture, what I see is that God sits above our politics and we say, God, come join my team. I'm on this team. I belong to this party, this club. Can you be on the side of this nation? And over here, another group says, God, come join our club. Be on the side of this nation. And God sits in the heavens and he says, now you be on my side. You reflect my character and you reflect my love and you reflect me to the nations. God sits above our politics. Let me give you a couple other verses. Acts chapter 17 Paul says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. The idea is that God determined the boundaries of the nations. God sits above and he says, I want these people to live here and I want these people to live here. And I elevate these kings and these politicians and these princes. Why? Because I want all of the nations to have the opportunity to know me. So God says, I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. You get on my side. And you be a part of the plan that I have for all of the nations to know me. Daniel chapter 2. Right before Daniel is about to go into the lion's den, he's been told that the king is going to toss him in the lion's den for his testimony of God. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So the king says, Daniel, I'm sorry. Darius says, Daniel, you're going to go in the lion's den because you didn't worship me. And Daniel says, na, 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 right? My God sits above you. He set you up. He'll knock you down. God is in control. He's on his own team. And he doesn't take sides in our battles. Again, that doesn't mean he's not concerned. That doesn't mean that he doesn't care. And we'll talk about that in a moment, that he doesn't care about issues. Certainly he does. But God is above our politics. What that means is not only uh, that God is not a member of a party, but also God gives governments limited authority. They have limited authority. And what that means is that governments do not have the ability to bring the kingdom of God to earth. Romans 13 tells us that governments are ultimately set up to protect the people within their boundaries from threats within, right? To protect from criminals, to protect from threats without those nations that would want to attack. And God sets them up. Why? Ultimately, Acts 17, we see so he can provide an environment where men might come to know him. But governments cannot usher in the kingdom. They cannot end the problem of human sin. They cannot end the problem of human poverty. They cannot bring healing and health and life to all mankind. They have limited authority. I wonder if any of you in elementary school or junior high ever were tasked with being a hall monitor. Anybody ever get the joy of being a hall monitor? Teacher says, you're going to be the one that's going to tell me. You're you're essentially the class rat, right? You're going to be the one that's going to tell me if the other kids are doing anything wrong. You rat them out. You tell me. And if they do something wrong, you say, no, stand back in line. Now, if you are the hall monitor, you have delegated authority, don't you? You can't suddenly decide, I'm going to change the educational policies of the sixth grade. You begin assigning homework, more homework or less homework. You decide we're going to study uh, Iowa history instead of Texas history because it seems nicer to you, right? You can't do that. You don't have that ability. You're not the teacher. You're not the principal. You're not the superintendent. Same thing with human governments. Human governments have limited authority because God has given them their authority. What that means is that if we make politics the central concern of our lives, we've missed the point of our lives. 
If we make politics the central concern, then what we fail to realize is that God has established uh, his own kingdom and that God is ultimately going to come and he's going to finally usher in a kingdom of righteousness and perfection and health and peace, a place where there will be no more tears and no more crying and no more sorrow and no more poverty. And when we make human governments the central concern of our lives, we fail to acknowledge the authority and the righteousness and the holiness of God who sits above our politics. I think this is why those in recent days who have been writing uh, that social action is in essence the sum of the gospel are deeply and perhaps dangerously mistaken. Because certainly I can feed the poor and I can give them food in their bellies. I can go build a well in Africa and it may be wonderful because those men and women have water and they have longer lives. But if I do that without providing any sense of eternal life, then I've left nothing behind but a people whose bellies are full, but whose spirits are still dead. We're still destined for an eternity apart from Jesus Christ unless they understand and believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Governments cannot remove the problem of sin and devastation and destruction that it ultimately brings. Neither can social action apart from presentation of the gospel. And so when we participate even in social action and in politics, we do so not in and of itself as an end in and of itself, but as an opportunity to point men and women toward the character of Jesus Christ. So when I give or I care for the poor and the widow and the orphan, as James 2 instructs us to do, I do so ultimately so that men and women will see the character of Jesus Christ and they will be drawn to the character and the love of Jesus Christ to a kingdom ultimately where there will be no more poverty, there will be no more orphans, there will be no more widows. And they say, I want to be a part of that, that God offers. And so I place my trust and faith in Jesus Christ. My guess is that there are some of you that you have engaged in politics or social action, believing that it is uh, the central concern of your life. Some of you perhaps placed your hope in a presidential candidate. And if I mention our current president, it's not because I'm picking on him specifically. It's because he's current. I could do the same thing with the previous one or the one before that. But many of you said, uh, this president's going to come in and he's going to bring peace. He's going to end the wars. And a month after he comes into office says, ah, we're going to leave the troops there for years and years and years. And many of you perhaps voted for a president because he said, I'm going to fix the economy. It's going to be better. You're going to get better jobs. And you're in your second year of college and you go, sounds good. I'd like one of them in a couple of years. And now you're graduating and you don't have one. Right? We can debate whether the economy is better, whether the economy is worse, but the bottom line is no government, no president, I don't care whether it's Barack Obama or George W. Bush or Bill Clinton or George Bush Sr. or President Reagan, no government, no president, no politician can fix the problems that really deeply trouble the world. Problems of sin that lead to destruction, death, and devastation. Only the indwelling spirit of God given through Jesus Christ, can do that. Maybe that uh, you're here this morning. I know that we have some people here this morning that are not normally here. Maybe that you're here this morning and you've not yet heard the message that there is a God who rules over the universe, who wants to know you and offers ultimately a kingdom and a a government and a, a life and a world that will be completely peaceful, 
completely free of sin. And the only way to know him, the only way to be a part of what he offers is to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. Because all of us are separated from God because we've sinned against him. We've disobeyed him. We're destined for an eternity apart from him in hell. Terrible place. But God says, if you come to know me through Jesus Christ, Jesus died for your sin. He paid the penalty. He rose again. You believe in me. You will have eternal life and you will participate in the kingdom ultimately that I offer. That's the hope of our world. No government. So God sits above our politics. And he says, you come and be on my side. Come and be on my side. Now, that having been said, we do see biblically that God cares deeply, I think, about particular issues. In particular, we see that God values justice and holiness. God values justice and holiness. He doesn't belong to a particular political party, but he seems to care passionately about certain issues, particularly those that reflect his character. When I was in about seven, uh, about first grade, about six or seven years old, there were some people at the school that I was at that developed these two little clubs. One was called the Puppy Team, and one was called the Marshmallows. Now, I know those don't sound tough, right? If you're thinking of a gang name, I wouldn't go with one of those, you know, but um, those were the two clubs, and they had this rivalry on the playground. And we would pretend to kind of, you know, fight each other. We'd get together and we'd kind of, you know, exchange false blows because we knew we'd get in a lot of trouble if we actually hit anybody. So the teacher said, uh, I don't want you to actually pretend to fight. Uh, but we, so we took it underground. You know, we'd hide behind the slide or whatever and we'd pretend to do this. And uh, so, uh, so I was doing this one day on the playground and I got caught. One of the teachers walked around the corner and she caught me and this other kid and she sent us to the principal's office. Now, when we got to the principal's office and sat down, he said, now one of you is a puppy, one of you is a marshmallow, right? Uh, he didn't really care which. He didn't, uh, he didn't suddenly say, uh, you know, here's the, here's the problem, marshmallow. I am in favor of the puppies, so you are going to get detention. You go on, keep it up, right? He didn't care. He doesn't care which team is which. All he cares about is what? We have violated his standards for the school. So we both equally got in trouble. Although God is not on one team or the other, God cares deeply about his character. And when we violate his standards and in the issue of government and politics, we see repeatedly throughout scripture, there are certain issues that come to the forefront. And one is this, that God cares deeply for the weak and the defenseless. He cares deeply for the weak and the defenseless. Psalm 82, 1 through 4 says this, God has taken his place in the midst of the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. God says, I want those who rule this earth to protect the rights of those who cannot protect themselves. Uh, We talked about this several weeks ago when we talked about the issues of life and the issue of abortion. And we ultimately argued, we believe this is why God takes a stand against this issue of abortion fundamentally because it is an issue of God valuing those who cannot value themselves when one group ultimately decides that for convenience sake, We are going to end the lives of a smaller group or a weak and defenseless group. We say God cares deeply about an issue like that. 
This is why the original leaders in the 1950s and 60s of the first civil rights movement in this country were primarily Christian pastors. Men who looked at the scripture and said it's not appropriate to steal away the ability of one group to earn a living or to beat them or to abuse them or to lynch them without any cause or any retribution. It's not okay to do that simply because one group is weaker and of another race. This is why uh, the men who were at the forefront of ending slavery in the United Kingdom a couple of hundred years ago were primarily men of deep Christian conviction because they held that God had created all men in His image. And it's not okay to abuse and not take care of, not protect the rights of the weak and defenseless. Now, this principle, as we look at it, doesn't necessarily extend to the idea that the government is uh, able or responsible to end the problem of poverty. They don't have that ability or authority. But it does say, no, the government is held responsible to protect from crime, from injustice, those who can't protect themselves. That's why I think certain issues are more significant than others. This is why I personally believe that the issue of abortion is more significant than an issue of fiscal policy or whether I have all the health care I want or whether I have everything that I need financially. Because God cares deeply for those who cannot care for themselves, for the weak and defenseless. We also see not only does he care for the weak and the defenseless, uh, but he also values leaders of character. Second Samuel 23 verses 2 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. God values those men and women of character. So it does matter. Every time there's a politician that has multiple affairs or there's a politician who has had shady business dealings, the debate erupts. Uh, Does his private character matter in his public occupation? Can he still be a good president, senator, congressman, even if he is blatantly cheating on his spouse, abusing his children, neglecting them, engaging in shady business dealings? And the scripture would suggest to us, absolutely it matters. And the reason is because if a person does not obey and honor God in his private life, if he's dishonest, he lacks integrity, how do we know that he won't do the same in public life? So God says, don't vote on the basis of charisma, but for character. God cares deeply about leaders of character. So we choose leaders And we engage in the process not based on our happiness or our pocketbook, but ultimately, how can we, we, in the place we've been put, most accurately reflect the character and the values of God demonstrated in Jesus Christ? God calls us to see his values and then ultimately to respond as he wants us to respond. I'm going to give you a few verses here in a moment. God calls us to respond appropriately. Biblically, how are we to respond? First responsibility that we have is to pray. Is to pray for our leaders. First Timothy chapter 2, 
Paul writes, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. wonder when was the last time you prayed for our president? Last time that you prayed for Congress, for our mayor for that matter. As I read this, it was convicting to me because uh, I've done a whole lot more complaining than I have praying, if I'm very honest. I've spent more time debating issues than I have praying that God would give the men in our nation who lead us wisdom and understanding and righteousness. So our first responsibility is we pray say, well, it's really hard to pray when I don't trust the leaders. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, when 1 Timothy was written, the people who were in charge. Uh, Some of you have maybe heard of an emperor by the name of Nero. Nero was a really fun guy, but he was nuts. Nero uh, liked to take Christians and use them as torches at his garden parties. When Rome burned down, Nero blamed the Christians. And it's been speculated for centuries that Nero actually ordered the burning so he could have something to blame on the Christians. He was a ruthless, brutal, angry dictator. It's in that context that Paul says, pray pray for him. Pray for him. God would bring him wisdom and understanding and knowledge. Not only pray for him, but... He takes us one further and he says, obey, joyfully obey. Not just obey, but joyfully obey. 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 to 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now remember again, these are men and women who are underneath a regime. that It's not a regime that is doing a bad job with fiscal policy. It's a regime that is killing people like them. They're not worried whether or not they can go to the doctor next week. They're worried whether or not they're going to get slaughtered or beheaded. And Peter says, obey. In fact, as as we look at the book of Exodus 22, 28, God actually commands his people not even to speak negatively about a ruler, but to respond joyfully. Since I've had children, one of the things that we are trying to train them, is that when you obey, you you obey with a good attitude. You obey with a good attitude. So when I say, it's time to clean up, you don't walk away and go, right? And then go clean up or throw them in the box or pick them up and toss them across the room or look at me with this look, right? See if you can stare me down. You obey joyfully. I can remember distinctly as a child one day, uh, I was in the middle of playing a game or doing something, and my mom said, Matt, I need you to go and take out the garbage. 
And I said, well, mom, let me just finish my game. And she said, no, I need you to do it now. So I tossed the controller on the floor and I walked in the other room and I began to, why does my mom always do this? It's so stupid. I'm just, you know, and really I'm nothing but like a big cleaning robot to her and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm muttering all of this as I'm cleaning and, and I'm, I'm emptying the garbage pail and I'm muttering and I turn around and my mom is standing behind me. And she goes, what was that? And, and I didn't repeat it to her. But she rightly said, when I ask you to do something, I want you to do it joyfully. And many of us, we submit, but we don't submit joyfully. And we complain. One of my favorite passages from the book of Matthew, Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22, is where Jesus has posed the question, is it all right to pay taxes to Caesar? And this was a big issue. Should we pay taxes to, a, to an ungodly nation that's going to use the money for evil purposes. And they asked him to trap him. Because if he said no, the Romans could come and kill him as a revolutionary. If he said yes, the Jewish scribes and leaders would say he values supporting an evil government. And I love what Jesus does. He holds up the coin and he says, look at the coin. Whose face is on the coin? I picture the Pharisees looking at it going, it's a trick question, right? Caesar. Jesus says, then you do this. You give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. What's God's? Everything. My life. My body. My mind. My spirit. He says, look, this is, this is money. They print it. You spend it. It gets discarded. He says, don't spend your life rebelling against an earthly kingdom when, when God owns everything. Give your life to him. Yeah, let Caesar have the coin. Jesus says, obey the earthly government, even even if the ways they're spending your money don't seem appropriate to you. Now, granted, there is biblical warrant for saying, if the government is directly asking me to disobey the Bible, if the government is asking me to recant Jesus Christ or to harm another person, then there's biblical warrant, especially in the book of Daniel, for saying, no, I'm not going to do that. But by and large, the scripture says, you obey and you obey joyfully. God calls us to respond. He calls us to respond by prayer, joyful obedience, and then finally, participation. Participation. I get this principle from 1 Samuel as well as from Deuteronomy 12 that talk about how the nation of Israel was to choose their kings. And ultimately, God held them responsible even for their kings with the kind of kings that they had because the people had a lot of power and ability to demand a particular kind of king. And their first king, in fact, they went to Samuel, the prophet of God, and they said, we want a king. And Samuel says, don't do this. Let God rule over you. They say, no, we want a king. God says to Samuel, all right, I'll give them a king. And I love 1 Samuel chapter 8 because uh, when we first see the king that God is going to give them, uh, this guy named Saul, the only qualifications in the book of 1 Samuel given to Saul are that he's handsome and he's very tall. It says he's a head taller than everybody else. But as you read through chapter 8 and 9, what you see is that Solomon is a bit of an idiot, all right, and the reason that you see this is the first time that you see Saul in the book of 1 Samuel, he is wandering around literally for miles on end, days on end, looking for a lost donkey. 
His dad says, hey, Saul, go find the donkey. And he says, Saul passed through this country, didn't find the donkey. So he went all the way up to the northern reaches of Israel looking for a donkey. Until finally, when they're out of food and water, his servant says, his servant says hey, Saul, uh, maybe we should stop on the donkey thing for a little while and uh, go home because they're going to begin to think that something's happened to us now. And we're going to die looking for a donkey. Saul goes, oh, yeah. So he begins to turn around and he finds uh, Samuel who's going to anoint him as king. And Saul is still concerned about the donkey and he, and he asks Samuel about it. And Samuel says, Saul, you're going to be king. And he goes, by the way, that donkey, they found that donkey three days ago. Why don't you go on home and get ready to be king? All right, and what we see in the life of Saul is a man who is tall and charismatic and strong, but he is spiritually dense. And he is intellectually not the brightest bulb in the drawer. And yet the people say, we want a guy that will stand taller than us, that will look good as he carries the sword and leads us into battle. And Saul was a disastrous leader. And I think the, the ultimate point of the life of Saul as we look at Scripture is be careful who you choose. Again, we prioritize issues. God is deeply passionate about issues we align with his priorities, not, not our own gain, but his glory. And then we seek men and women of character rather than charisma. Again, as I look at the scripture, what I see is that God, he's not a part of a party. He's not a part of our groups, but he says, you get on my side. And in the way you vote, in the way you obey, in the way you speak, even in the way you participate in social action and justice, you seek to reflect the character of Jesus Christ who died and rose again and one day will bring his kingdom. We can't bring his kingdom. He will bring his kingdom. And we're called to reflect it and draw other men and women to join alongside of us as we reflect it and ultimately share in it. Would you guys pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for what it has to say to us about so many things, and we thank you for what it has to say to us about this issue of government, politics, even social justice. Father, uh, please protect us from making the mistake of believing that if we invest enough in a government, if we invest enough in social programs, uh, we can single-handedly solve the problems of sin and of devastation that is caused by sin. But instead, Father, let us point men and women to you, the eternal source of life. Let us come over and sit on your side rather than asking you to sign off on our small affairs. God, we thank you for your word again. We pray, bless us this week as we go about the tasks that we are responsible for and as we engage in the relationships to which we are accountable. Father, we thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.